before we start episode 43, I may have said last episode that I created a survey. If you go to sweetcode.io forward slash survey, please go in and fill that out for me because there is absolutely no feedback loop when it comes to podcasts. And I really want to understand the nature of the people who like to listen to the podcast and also things that I can do better as we approach episode 50. By the way, I'm not planning anything big for episode 50 yet, so I probably should figure that out. We'll just make it the most boring episode. Maybe that's a better approach. So today, I have a second ever Splunker co-worker on Developers Eating the World, but we're not going to talk about any of that. We're going to talk about open telemetry, and if you're one of the cool kids, OTAL, and Constance is one of the cool kids because she is an active contributor to the project. So Constance, can you briefly introduce yourself? Hi, yeah, thank you for having me. Um, so my name is Constance Caramelis. I am a principal software engineer at Splunk. And um, tech, well, like, I guess technically I'm a software engineer and I do contribute to open telemetry both on the collector, which we can talk about that later. It's a way to pretty much aggregate all your, your telemetry and forward it along, and also the governance committee, which I like to kind of view it as upper management for the project to make sure that it's <laughs> successful. Um, the C-suite. <laughs> it is it's kind of like the C-suite, yeah, for a project. And um, so I work on that, but I also have, uh, I also get to talk to a lot of end users in terms of them trying to adopt observability, and um, both in terms of how to do make adoption successful in their teams. Teams could be you know, team of three to team 100, um, however large, and just making that more intuitive. Um, how that kind of came up to be is that before I came to Omniscient through Splunk, I was at Lyft and I worked on Envoy. And so as a lot of people probably know, Envoy is yes, all about observability. Envoy is a big deal. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Uh, cool. Really, really big deal. Unex- didn't Unexpected big deal. Um, but we Envoy has a lot of observable, you know, has a lot of metrics and logs and traces. And so I started developing quite a few strong opinions about observability. And so that's kind of how I ended up working at the telemetry and kind of how I'm here. So this background has led you into more work that you could ever anticipate because in addition to your day job and contributing to open telemetry, you get invited to speak at a whole bunch of stuff, including KubeCon, which is happening this week. Do you like speaking? Yes and no. Um, it terrifies me. So like it is always like I love the idea of being able to communicate something. And then after then the evil part of my brain tells me I'm not good at communicating, you know, the self-sabotaging part. Yeah. And then so, you know, naturally doubt yourself. And then once it's done and you see the feedback, then it's fun again. Um, yeah. It's always a roller coaster. Yeah. I totally get that. I've Definitely in my speaking career, I've had these like ebbs and flows. And every time like I get back into it actively, it just it is totally against the grain. And then I kind of hit a stride. Um, so that's tough. So yeah. before you said a lot of really interesting things in terms of adoption. And we want to go into OTEL, the difference between what I guess is the standard and the collector. I found out very quickly that it's important to distinguish between those two when you talk to people. But first, how did you get into the area of development and engineering? Yeah. uh, In college, I'm a veterinarian, but um, I... 
I knew I didn't want to be in school for an extra like four or five, however many years veterinary school is like four or five years at least afterwards after finishing my undergrad. And so my brother suggested that I take a CS class because um, like ever since I was little, my brother's significantly older than me. He would always be like, hey, try these like, you know, slightly like programming problems. And so I started doing those and like, having fun. And so I accidentally ended up in it because I was good enough in the class that it was like a fun challenge, but not so like insurmountable. And um, I don't know, my entire career has always been like happy accidents where like I first started off doing research in college, but then I decided I didn't want to do that. And so I ended up as a tester at Microsoft and then then switched projects, all that stuff here. And so that's crazy. I uh, I mean, very cool. So application testing. Yeah, um, definitely like, some a bit of application testing. Uh, I started off on the I've done a lot of random projects over my career. Um, started off on application testing, but then ended up on the API testing team. And then after um, I ended up working, doing, kind of doing a hybrid of testing and PM. And that's where I've always, I guess I started wearing muscle hats early on where we were a lot, I was working at Windows Phone and we're trying to, we're getting ready for launch. And so I would, you know, send out surveys like, hey, how did these things, like, how did this, you know, version of Windows Phone worked? You know, what are the bugs you reported? And trying to correlate that with some of our testing failures. And so, setting those reports. And that was kind of the first thing that got me first big thing in my career. Yeah. I think research and, and this has been kind of a common theme. I've had two teachers on developers in the world. I think that research and that aptitude of like traversing the complexity of applications and the things that could potentially go wrong. I don't know if it's a natural trait or if it's something that is learned, but it certainly is a huge um, catalyst and value to have when you're in engineering. Yeah. Especially like getting to learn, like learning how to ask good questions. Yes. Right. And thinking about it from different ways. Cause how I, so I guess like for spoiler, like my keynote is all about um, my experience over this past five, six months at Splunk. Uh, helping uh, users migrate to a new tool, both also like to a product and also to open telemetry. And I got to wear many hats. But like one of the big takeaways I had was like, however you ask the question shapes the answer. And so you need to think about, you know, what answer you're trying to get. And then after ask a question in different ways, so you can get different answers and after come up with something that's actually, I guess what I'd say is true and not as biased as we want it to be or as we think yeah. it can be. Yeah, it's tricky. It's tricky. Yeah. It's a fine line that you have to walk. So why don't you give us the TLDR of open telemetry? Yeah. Um, sorry. So there's two. Okay. So let's talk about it. Let's do the technical part and we can go to the, you know, the like tagline. Um, right. But there's, there's two things to it, right. There is one is the actual implementation of the API. So you can generate metrics and traces. Um, logs support is coming in some variation, but so we have implementations that in, I think a dozen languages right now. Um, each language has various support in terms of what formats are exported in, um, the completeness, like you know, completeness of tracing and metric support there. Um, and there's also a way to collect it, which is um, the collector. So like, those are the two main components of open telemetry. So if we put like our vendor hats on for a second, right? Vendor hats and also like from the perspective of the customers is that usually when it comes to telemetry, right? Metric, metrics maybe not so much, but at least traces, a lot of that in terms of just like, you know, implementing traces, right? Adding that to your application code base or collecting that, that was really ven usually vendor locked in. That, you know, it makes it really difficult for 
end users who adopted, who've added tracing to their applications to say like, hey, you know what, I want to switch backends for whatever reason. You know, like it could be like I was using an open source tool, like maybe I've made it myself and I want to go somewhere else. And like, since I was always so tied into either a vendor or wasn't using a standard, you know, standard format for the trace, it just made it really hard to move. And so you kind of just got either stuck with either set of tracing and so you can really adapt as things change. You're being held back by your your management tool in your data collection and management plane. Like that's not the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> You're not supposed no. to slow down because of your tooling. Anything no. it should facilitate. Yeah, so that's definitely part of it. Um, and also like, you know, it's like then going back to then why we have, you know, like open senses and open tracing merging is that then, you know, like since there's so many people who have so much experience and observability, then at least we can kind of come up with one way that will hopefully be the standard for a long time to go, come. So that way then we won't have to change it as often. And then after it'll also provide, you know, like we talk a lot about, I say like, you know, the cloud native world, but also, you know, there's a lot of projects or companies that are coming from a non-cloud native world and they're going to want to bridge that gap. Well, the nice thing, at least about open telemetry, it does also provide a lot of ways to do. So like, hey, if you had like an old version of tracing, like if you wanted to, like with the collector, for example, you can write a, a translation unit that could say, hey, I'll accept traces in whatever format or metrics, whatever format ha you have and convert it into say the open telemetry format. And that way now you're actually already supporting cloud native formats, even though I'm saying cloud native in um, magic quotes because yeah. it's not really, it's not proprietary. It's not, it doesn't necessarily belong to cloud native. It's just a part of the, people just associate right. these the things with cloud native technologies. The nature of the application. Oh yeah, I'm totally guilty of using cloud native yeah. as like a, a thing, but it reduces the lift of yeah. of making changes in your environment, which is which exactly. is tremendous. Because again, if if that is what holds you back, that's the wrong thing that should be holding you back. Just like. Yeah. Hopefully, security isn't holding you back. There's ways to yeah. with DevSecOps. So you were predominantly talking about the collector just then, but you said the standard. I found out very quickly when I started to get on the Open Telemetry bandwagon that I had to clarify what I was talking about. Is that the right way of looking at it? Not quite. So um, one part is like so. There's the Otel like specification that will say um, okay. one like. Yeah, this is the spec. There's going to be a spec that says, you know, what is the format that traces the metrics, eventually logs, or any other type of telemetry format you're going to have there. Um, that ends up strongly leading to an API in terms of like how things should interact, like how you should upload, you know, traces and all that stuff there. And so then um, when it comes to using open telemetry within your application, you're going to either, you're going to want to include some form of libraries. And so OpenTelemetry does have libraries in, I think I was saying earlier, like 12 different languages, roughly 12, but that's still quite a few. I have it, I was compiling that list not too long ago. And so um, those will implement the spec that say like, hey, I support OTEL format in this way here. And it'll actually also a part of that we can also like support, you can do support Jaeger, Zipkin, you can support Prometheus. And so say like, hey, include me, include this library and use these methods within your application to generate the metrics and traces. And then after, once your application has done that, then you can send things to the collector. And that one is also implementing some of the specs. 
And that way that's where you can do all the aggregation of the metrics traces and you can do post-processing. One thing that I really like about um, the open telemetry collector is like within traces is that you can say like, hey, I forgot to add these tags. Let me add these tags here or let me redact these things because oops, I forgot. I put PII data in there. Like I do not want that sent and I do not have the ability to go change that code because it's deployed, but at least I can delete those tags there. You just mentioned two huge things in your talk. You just recently did a talk on tags. And what's yes. interesting about tags is that this is like an information architecture problem. It's not a fully an implementation problem. And organizations who kind of just think that the tool is going to do the job for them, they have to think about this kind of stuff. Um, I, yeah. I, I think about feature flagging as well as kind of a similar thing. Like you have to be very deliberate about the structure and how you implement tags, right? That goes back to like, you know, like what questions are you trying to ask? And unfortunately, because that, that talk that I gave, um, it's not available yet on YouTube. I don't know if it will be. Um, but for the TLDR, for everyone's listening, is that when you're adding tags to your traces, you really need to just think about like what problems you're trying to solve. And going back to like how you ask a question uh, shapes the answer. Just like think about it all from like, are you trying to answer like to your boss that you need to know how many customers are using something? Or are you trying to debug it because, you know, every time someone changes, there's a deployment of a new version at like Friday, three o'clock, like something goes wrong. Like type those type of questions there so you can influence what tags you want to set. That is... Uh... We talk about T-shaped individuals. I think I bring this up every time. I have like this love-hate relationship with uh, soft skills and T-shaped individual, but almost from a um, from a monitoring perspective, if you're a cloud ops person, like you can't just be the, the monitoring person or the execution who implements the automation. Like there's other facets that you have to think about to make yeah. yourself a T-shaped cloud ops professional. So we didn't state the obvious because it's obvious to us, but open telemetry is an open source project. Oh, yes. Oops. And how did you get into open source? Um, accidentally. I ended up going to Lyft to work on Envoy. And um, this conversation ended up happening many, many years ago now. Um, and I didn't, when I was talking about joining Lyft, I, the only reason I went to work on the Envoy team is because one of the people that I met from Lyft that I had like an informal like, hey, do you want to come here? Talk to someone. Ended up being Matt Klein and they just enjoyed talking to him and just the way that he was breaking down how to um, adopt or how to adopt Envoy internally at Lyft. This is before it open source made sense to me. I'm like, oh, I enjoyed the like your engineering rigor. I think I can learn a lot from you. It's like, I know nothing about networking, so let's just do it. So I went to the team and um, it was about four, I think four months after I joined Lyft, maybe less than that, that's when I got open sourced. And so I accidentally started working on open source because I was working on Envoy Lyft and it open sourced. You demonstrated another element, which is just pure grit. You didn't really guess it, you just jumped into it, which I think is pretty crazy. Well, there's like a whole buffer, like I guess like if we were to talk more in depth about my career, like, you know, it's like, I um, I did fail my first set of Lyft interviews. So at first I wasn't going to go to Lyft. And then after um, I did a second round and then I got into Lyft. And so then I was like, oh, finally. So like, it it's, I guess it's easy to summarize it now. It's like, oh yeah, it went really smoothly. But like I did fail those interviews. And that part of my career was a very, very challenging point. But definitely, I definitely grew a lot as an engineer. And also it's like, yeah, I was going to say technical engineer and also like the technical aspects, but also like the social, the rest of the soft, I guess we're going to call it soft skills, mostly because we can't properly measure them, but they're not easy skills at all. They're, I mean, they're not soft at all. They're, they're very, no. 
and they're tangible yeah. and you can tell the people who have deliberately invested effort in building them versus those who do not. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. actually what I think the whole skill up program from the DevOps Institute is kind of about. So you jumped in working on Envoy, which, you know, little did you know, or maybe you knew that it was like one of the key cloud native projects out there uh, early on. And how did you continue your progression in open source? Like, how, how does that work? How do you jump into a project? Do you start just contributing a little bit? Do you get like really into the weed? And then going from that to now a governance board where you're, you're, you're the boss. Also, I'm going to clarify that we are a collective unit of people who I you're say collectively, management you're we, collectively a boss. You all together. Well, we're not collective. Yeah. Well, but like, I guess, I guess maybe I should, if you as a management, I guess we should maybe see like more steering committee. Cause I guess like, it's not like we're putting hard boundaries on things. I think it's more making sure like, okay, we're pointing in the right direction. Well, any good management should be exactly the same way. Oh, that's a good command, point. command and control is just not a good management stuff, but, but that's okay. Yeah. So yeah. Um, you're a part of the, the committee that yeah. drives and, and influences and makes sure that what comes into the final solution is, is good and sustainable for its growth. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a good way for contributing to open source. So first of all, I think one thing that we really need to dispel is that ways to contribute to open source, like isn't actually only coding because in terms of people like being able to add a feature, there's actually a lot more people who can do that and compared to those who can actually write really good blogs, That's right? Even create video content around it, like trying to explain things. Like I think what I like to say um, is that I'm really good at speaking human and what has helped me be really successful with Envoy and also with talking to users about open telemetry is that I, would be able to at least understand. I was starting to getting good at translating. They're like, hey, I'm trying to do X. I'm like, oh, you're trying to do X, which really means Y. So like, let me then actually help you connect the dots. And that's like where I, one of my, my last talk about Envoy was how to pretty much do like instant response with it. And I walked people through an example of like, imagine you're getting paged at three o'clock in the morning and how do you go from getting paged to solving things with Envoy and like slowly ingraining processes they can use. Um, so like that's an example of contributing to the community without actually doing any technical, you know, like I didn't add a PR for adding this um, thing there. Yeah, you're right. Cause the only open source, like the big open source projects I've contributed to have only been in the form of documentation, which I don't enjoy doing, but I could, but I didn't enjoy it. It's not. Yeah. Somebody, I, uh, so many life points to those who enjoy writing documentation. Cause like it is, it's very tedious and we always undervalue it. Um, oh yeah. It's so. I mean, so developers will call you out like heavily for bad docs. That yeah. is a very real and important thing. Sometimes like code bases could be really intimidating. And so like, if you're not sure if you like, if you're not sure if you can contribute to like, you know, the code review, like adding a doc is very beneficial blog posts, talks, cause at least what ends up like going back to adoption, it's not only about the tech, it's about successfully adopting a project, but you can't really successfully adopt a project 
unless there's good documentation, there's ways for you to translate like, hey, someone had this problem here and they can kind of solve that problem similar to my problem. So I think at least I can do that way. And so that really does help build that, that project up. Um, and we just, there's never enough people writing good docs in those type of, that type of content. So that's different ways to contribute knowledge and coding. And to start, it's just like a lot of projects have a thing, say like beginner wanted or like 101 or like, you know, first good project there. Like they'll be under the issues, most assuming those things are managed through GitHub. Finding those ones there and just trying like say like, hey, all, all projects I know would just be like, if you put a comment and be like, hey, like I'm new to the project, I want to pick this up. Can I try my hand at it? And most people would be like, please, please do. Since I, I am full say I'm always very risk averse. So like if depending on what it is, like I'd probably put a sample bit of like, hey, you know, I want to tackle this, this is how I'm thinking of approaching, give people time to, you know, comment on it and submit a PR and see how it goes. But like I also don't avoid I'm not specifying the part that like there's always that nerve-wracking part of like, am I doing a good job? And most I'm people honestly more intimidated by that than speaking in front of a room full of people. I don't know why though. Like, that sounds really scary to me. And, you know, it may be because I feel like open source contributors are like the the Reddit persona and they're just going to rip you apart because they can. I think that is an older way of open source. And what I've seen in like Envoy and Open Telemetry, that hasn't been the case, right? Like they're very much are like code of conduct that say like, you know, like you need to be respectful, right? Cause like, I think I'm remembering to not swear. <laughs> but it's like, you know, it's like- podcast all the time. I even have to well, no, it with explicit and the thing. Oh, well, like it's not even that sorry, but like, just like, don't be a dick. Like, especially like people are putting themselves out there. And I think that's what sometimes gives open source a bad rep is that, you know, like I still get nervous about it. It's like, I know, I logically know that I have quite decent technical, like, skills but I still get worried that someone's going to like be like oh my goodness why would you do this but I haven't seen that in Envoy or Open Telemetry and um those because those are the only two projects I contribute to open source and I've known from hearing other people talk like they don't experience that in other big projects like Kubernetes so let's just say that I'm going to say modern open source yeah maybe there's is a working away unfortunately there's some older projects that we can probably all think of that have that stereotypical attitude it's like why like it makes you a better engineer because you get to teach people when it reduces your workload makes other people learn new things and that way they can do different things then after eventually you have like someone else you can like discuss things with and you'll become a better engineer too so Um, let's say you get the nerve you start mm -hmm. contributing in whatever fashion you grow with the project how the hell do you divide up your time for this stuff i don't know i'm looking for that answer too um I am, I will say time management is not my strength. Uh, what, what is that? The Pomodoro method? Like, you know, save maybe like five, 10 minutes, like try it. Like I think trying that way. Um, I think that one thing to be cognizant of is like, as you get more experience working in an open source project, right? Like you're contributing, contributing, and eventually you're going to be asked to like help review. And that's a lot of time we always forget to account for is that reviewing other people's work is quite time consuming. So definitely add a decent buffer for that. Oh, wow. I don't know. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Code reviews are just, you have to put yourself in the developer's mind and wrote something. So it's like, you're almost writing that feature, but you're not. So like you have a little bit less of that requirement to deep dive into that mindset, but you still need to be close enough into it. So you can think like, hey, did they get the test cases? Does this make sense? Is there a better way? And so I think we always under, 
estimate how much work it is to do code reviews. Yeah. So I know after I'm done recording this, before I edit it, yeah. I already have an issue I'm going to submit on the project that I know. So awesome. I'm going to do something. Actually, that's another way to contribute. File issues. Yeah. If you see a bug. So before we play the word game, because I haven't done it in a while, the word game is where I give you industry terms and you give me your impression, opinion, definition. Uh, Give me the enterprise pitch for open telemetry. Enterprise pitch. Okay. So there's two ways. Um, Actually, there's pretty much one way that I start to say is that Open telemetry, given the way that we have, you know, libraries and collector, is that you get to choose what problem you need to solve first. Do you need to migrate your existing telemetry data to new backend or something like that? The collector is a great proxy for you to address that problem. But if you're at this point where you have, say, a backend you like, but you need to add more metrics, traces, whatever form of telemetry there, we have libraries for that too. So really, it depends on what problem you're trying to solve, but at least we have. We have solid options for both of that there. And then that'll allow you to, as you, you know, you, your organization is moving towards whatever your next telemetry, you know, observability goals are, is that you can slowly increment, you can slowly change and update everything. It doesn't require you to change everything at once. Because a lot of these, right, like I was saying earlier, is that there's support for Prometheus, Zipkin, Jaeger, OpenSenses format, um, there are other formats too. It's also really easy to add support for that too. So you don't have to force anything. Like even if you have your internal format, like a proprietary to you know an enterprise's formats for tracing, you can actually create your own bridge in one of these libraries or in the collector. So that way you can have that supported and you don't have to force all these legacy, I'm gonna say legacy, but you know, anyone that's in a V or VN minus one application to change those things right away. So there's ways to be really flexible with the adoption. Flexibility and one of the fun industry terms where I haven't seen a lot of meat, which is continuous improvement. So now I can't. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, because a lot of it's all or nothing. Yeah. That I did I did do an hotel post for DevOps.com and I yeah, I was talking a lot about the kind of that business side, the the continuous improvement. And the other thing is the sanitization of data, which I think is really cool, but it opens yeah. up a whole other thing of like best practices that you have to consider. All right, so terminology. First one is the new favorite term, and I always use this one, AI ops. Okay. Um, I... Big sign. <laughs> well, I really guess... Big sign. <laughs> I think... I think it's... Okay, so I guess defining it... Um, well, artificial intelligence ops, but uh, I would think it'd be better to say like automated, like response ops, right? Like I think what maybe what is lacking from a, like a lot of, I guess like we all experience is that we get paid for something silly and like, you know, I need to like increase capacity by 10%. I laugh because I think, you know, it's like adding AI feels like one of those gimmicky words we throw in front of things to make it sound flashy. Um, I've made this joke before, so I'm okay with making runs, like adding blockchain to something. But it would be really nice if like, there's things that are just like, you know, if I just needed to, you know, it's like, okay, in this one case, like add this one there. It's like, well, we just don't have ways to connect data. So yeah. exactly this here. We yeah. know that something's and, wrong, but yeah. And it's in, it's intelligent augment, intelligence augmenting 
you know, stuff we do on a regular basis. It's not, yeah. not magic and fairy dust. But speaking no. of blockchain, <laughs> uh, well, there was a very interesting observability. Uh, no, OTEL, a CNCF webinar on um, Hyperledger and OTEL. All right, next term. This is actually a technical term because I'm I'm curious. Um, service meshes. I'd be curious if they have any relation. Uh, to AI laughed ops. harder on that one than the AI ops one. Come on. <laughs> well, it's because uh, Envoy in like that's where we ended up having at Lyft and right in microservices and. I don't even know how you would describe it, right? It's just like you have That's all your crazy. services connected. Like when you know, you know. But a lot yeah. of people are like, well, is this networking? Mm, no, not really. Kind of, right? It's like a component to it. I think it's meant to be more, it's like more naturally, like you have microservices and they're connected and you kind of view it as a mesh, like if you had almost a spider web and there's just way, different ways to control it. You, can, you want to control the networking, you want to control... I guess like the configurations for these things there. Um, the a way to reconnect all the things that you disconnected. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. It's like it's meant to be. Well, Solves like for the core. problem that was created. <laughs> like I, I love. Well, I guess like I do love microservices because at least like one thing I was really impressed at Lyft is that some of the velocity of how quick, like just the developer velocity was crazy. And so, like, it's just like, oh, like, these things change, like, within a week. And you're just at least yeah. having that flexibility for people to, like, you know, control their own deployments. Yeah, view it as a way that, you know, things are broken apart and you just, you need to control, you need to control everything, but have a more central management way for it. From, like, an app perspective, even though your services aren't from an app perspective. Yeah, the velocity thing is interesting because I've been talking a lot about, the purpose of you know modern tooling now is to really keep up with that velocity. So we spent a whole bunch of time in the early days of DevOps thinking about going fast without considering what it takes to go fast. Yeah. Here's one that came up again in a recent, I think I watched it over the weekend webinar, a term that I'm not a fan of, no ops. The desire, it's supposed to be like what, no operation. I believe that's what it's meant to be. I think where the desire is, if you, Let's just not overcomplicate things, right? Because sometimes, as engineer, like if we're putting like, and so I know not everyone's listening to engineer, but like you know, if we put our engineering hat, we're trying to build things. Like we just sometimes make problems harder than they need to be, yeah. and so like more just like you know, it's like, do I actually you know need to add this extra step, or do I need to I'm trying to think of things of over engineering? And I think this is where this is where my weakness comes in is that I. Like I'm the type of person that if you, if I just have to run command lines all day, like I'm fine with it. And I won't think of ways to buy, like make it go faster. I'm just like, this is what my process is. So when people are like, oh, I'm adding another step, I'll be grumpy about it, but I just do it anyway. So I'm not always the best person at saying like, can we remove another step? But, but I know there are definitely cases where we just like make a problem, like you're either pro solving the wrong problem or you're solving a problem that's like maybe like three steps away, but we don't need it yet. And so just making sure that however we're operating the system is not too, it's not you're not I can see it forcing the questions that nobody is asking, you know, because people will automate processes, even if they're bad processes that happens in development. It happens everywhere in business. Everywhere. Yeah. I could see it 
pushing that. What I, if, if anybody applies to me that there will be no operator, then in my opinion, at the point in time where there is no need for an operator, I don't care if it's the developer, whoever it is, then everything's fully autonomous anyway. So there's no developers either. There's, there's nothing. <laughs> We're just all just hanging out and using stuff created by robots. So is that why you don't like the term? Yeah, there is always. <laughs> always. You can't, just because it's not an SRE or a cloud ops engineer or whatever, there's always an operator somewhere. Yeah, I don't, so I, I imagine, so granted, like, I don't really, I don't follow a lot of these names, but like from what I read of like, you know, like on Twitter, I think the more the motivation was to kind of a little bit just to highlight that we try to make everything like we just try to add steps for everything. I think it was just, I don't think it was like, like Kubernetes, the complete definition of adding too much complexity. You think that everything in Kubernetes is like necessary complexity? No, but I think kind of similar to Envoy is that it, it is like a full tool set and you just need to figure out what you need to use. True. Yeah, so you get to choose which complexity yes. compartment that you Yeah. Have. Okay. And so maybe, maybe to that is like, you know, don't turn on every feature, like, like it's an Envoy or Kubernetes or whatever project you're using, right? Or like, you know, even when you install an application, like you don't need to turn on everything there. You don't always need the premium edition, just choose what you need. Yeah. Well, so the term very often is used is just to be provocative. I mean, yeah, that's- It's a uh, start in the pot. Right. But- which unfortunately, like it's so noisy in the tech market, sometimes you have to do. Yeah. But you know, what you were saying before, it's kind of like everything should operate from a, and so in security, it's called least privilege. You always start with the least amount of security and then add as you need. What would be the technology version of least privileges? Least config, I don't know. <laughs> Somebody come up with that. <laughs> and that'll be the new term we use instead of no ops. I think security people aren't going to like me for this, but like I find least privilege really annoying. And maybe it's because I'm used to like, I used to have a lot more like, I used to have admin rights. And so I miss being able to SSH on machines. Um, I understand the reasoning behind least privilege, but sometimes I find it a little too restrictive. Usually how developers are working on their local machine doesn't emulate how you interact with production. And there's such yeah. a difference between the two is like, if I am on my, like, you know, if I'm running things within a VM and I have to SSH here locally to see information, but I can't do the same thing on a prod machine, my, like, if I'm really frustrating when, you know. Yeah, but I mean, so, that's, so parity between dev and prod is like a tremendous problem. And I think there's yeah. tooling coming around that. But also operational yeah. drift is a big problem too. You don't want yeah. that to like make its way into prod either. It's a, it's a balance. And, and not only is there like least privileges, there's zero trust or trustless um, yeah. other paradigms. So, well, Constance, thank you for joining. I really appreciate it. The Open Telemetry Project is kind of a new place that I've hung my hat a little bit because I believe in it. And it's really cool to be able to talk to somebody who's on the governance board. Everybody listening should go and find all of your other talks, including, I don't know if the KubeCon ones become available after, but I know that those it does become available. They become almost instantly available. I think my oh. keynote goes on Thursday morning. So Thursday, which should be the same 
day that we publish this, which creates that hypothetical problem of when is now? I've been watching YouTube videos on that. <laughs> so if you want to get super theoretical, just waste a whole bunch of mental energy. Think about that. <laughs> I'm going to say no thank you to your offer. I feel like there's already enough time bending going on right now. But thank you for the challenge. <laughs> for challenging you. All right. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Yeah.